1: From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk, fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
2: It's Thursday, February 16th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome in one and all to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. That's how the show works. I'm political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. And we hold down the fort on this fine program every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time. And if you can't listen as we air live, we do recommend the podcast as an option. GuyBensonShow.com for all of it. GuyBensonShow.com. And for the podcast, in addition, there's FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's free. It's on demand when the show is over every day. Follow us on social media. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. My personal handle on those same platforms, at Guy P. Benson. Line up today as follows. Charles Payne of Fox Business Network. On all the latest economic data, he's coming up about an hour from now. Nate Hockman, National Review. Interesting little stir at the New York Times. People on the left fighting with the New York Times, including within the New York Times, what's new, We'll give you details on that. Nate has all of it. And then Shannon Bream, anchor of Fox News Sunday. Looking forward to a conversation with her at the start of our final hour, the third hour. And she just did her show last week from the Super Bowl. Like, the desk was in the end zone on the field. Absolutely awesome. We'll ask her about that. Plus, what's on tap, what's on deck for her show this coming weekend. So, much to get to here on this Thursday edition of the program. I want to start with some breaking news and a Fox News alert. President Biden less than an hour ago breaking his silence on the unidentified flying objects that have been shot down in recent days by the U.S. military. We have tried to differentiate between the Chinese spy balloon, which we know what it was, and these other three items that were downed. And at least as of today, we still didn't know what they were. Some people have been wondering should the president speak, should we hear from the commander in chief to give us an explanation of what has actually happened here, new information, etc. Well, I guess the White House finally heard enough of those calls and decided to send Biden out there. I mean, you can be the judge of whether or not he actually broke any serious news in a meaningful way, which was my concern all along, having him speak for the sake of the country hearing from him. If there's not a bunch of meaningful new information, I mean, is that really actually useful to the American people? But here's what he said, part of it at least, in Cut 27, again, this was minutes ago.
3: Our military, through the North American Aerospace Defense Command, so-called NOR- NORAD, closely scrutinized uh, the, uh, our airspace, including enhancing our radar to pick up more slow-moving objects above our country, around the world. In doing so, they tracked three unidentified objects, one in Alaska, Canada, and over Lake Huron in the Midwest. They acted in accordance with established parameters for determining how to deal with unidentified aerial objects in U.S. airspace. At their recommendation, I gave the order to take down these three objects due to hazards to civilian commercial air traffic and because we could not rule out the surveillance risk of sensitive facilities.
2: Okay, so audio a little low there, but you could hear the president. I mean, did you detect major news there? It was kind of a rehash of what we knew, and you're just kind of waiting on new news. Okay, how about cut 28?
3: We acted in consultation with the Canadian government. I spoke personally with Prime Minister Trudeau and Can from Canada on Saturday. And just as critically, we acted out of an abundance of caution and an opportunity that allowed us to take down these these objects safely. Our military and the Canadian military are seeking to recover the debris so we can learn more about these three objects. Our intelligence community is still assessing all three incidences. They're reporting to me daily and will continue their urgent efforts to do so, and I will communicate that to the Congress. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were. But nothing nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other, any other country. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research.
2: Okay, so that's maybe a little morsel of something there from the president where... We heard, again, more of the same. They're still seeking recovery. We're almost a full week after the shoot-down of last Friday's incident and that object in Alaska. They're still seeking recovery. They're still trying to assess what these items were. He admits we still don't know, at least this is what they're telling us. We still don't know what they were. We blew them out of the sky, but we didn't know what they were. Okay, still trying to find them days later. Okay, but the assessment now is that most likely the scenario is that these were commercial or research use balloons or objects. I mean, it sounds like some of them were at least like the size of a car. That was the first report we got on the Alaska shoot down. I don't know. I mean, did that sound conclusive to you? Most likely it was this. He said, we don't know what they are. We continue to look for them. We continue to study what this is. Wouldn't you think, by the way, if this, and I'm not, I'm not trying to spread conspiracies. I'm not saying this is going to turn out to be something way beyond what he just said. But if it was some sort of research balloon, don't you think the research company that just lost a bunch of money, would step forward, at least in some private setting, and say, hey, that was ours. Um, It disappeared. It was flying in that area. Just so you know, this is what it was, and here's all the details. At least based on what he just told us, that hasn't happened. He's saying we still don't know what these things were. But the best guess, at least for now, based on whatever information they've got, is that they were commercial or research balloons or flying objects not connected to some sort of Chinese espionage operation. But he didn't rule that out either. Jackie Heinrich at the White House, our colleague, also pointing out that the president said that new policies dealing with future potential threats on this front will be shared with appropriate members of Congress, but will not be shared with the public because the goal is to make sure adversaries – can't use that information to evade the next steps. I mean, that makes sense to me. You want to just broadcast to everyone, okay, because these things have happened, here's what we're going to do instead, and then just hand a roadmap to the CCP for future evasion. I mean, that makes sense to me. One of the succinct theories that I read today from someone that I follow on Twitter this was his theory of the case, and this makes as much sense as anything to me, and I'll just leave you with this before we move on to a different subject involving President Biden. He said it's weird that we shot nothing down for years, then four things in a week, and then nothing since. Basically, he writes, I think the administration was embarrassed by the China balloon debacle, eased filters in terms of you know uh, the, the filters of that we use to detect things that are flying above our airspace as a result, started shooting benign things down because they were seeing more stuff because of the East filters, then realized it was an overreaction and are now paring back. I don't know if that is true, but that's, again, very plausible, at least in my mind. And I guess we got little tiny dribs and drabs of information from Biden, but no clear explanation. It was just more of an update. They took what Corrine Jean-Pierre and John Kirby have been saying. Remember, some of the senators, we had Rubio here saying most of what they got in their classified briefing was basically already public information, didn't need to be classified. They just took it and rearranged it into some paragraphs and had Biden come out and read it. So that's what happened right around an hour ago. He's, there were some questions shouted at him, including fine family business ties in china and that sort of thing and he kind of chuckled at that didn't take questions and marched out so there you have it now i want to pivot to something else involving president biden it seems like the white house is still trying to get some mileage out of this idea that the republicans want to cut social security and medicare as part of the debt ceiling deal which Got a lot of heckling brewing at the State of the Union address. and Then Biden, supposedly genius, in a genius move, said, okay, you agree with me. It's now all on the record. We're not doing this. Of course, he was lying about the Republican position in the debt ceiling and that whole negotiation. Then they objected to the lying, and then he made it seem like, or at least allies in the media made it seem like, he tricked them into embracing his position, except on this particular front, he didn't trick them into anything. they were just stating their actual position as opposed to the cartoon position that he was trying to present to the American people dishonestly. But in that debate, he's pointing to, and we had Senator Rick Scott on this point a few days ago on the show, he was pointing to another proposal from Rick Scott who got into some trouble before the midterms on taxes, potentially raising taxes on uh, low-income people, and now this one, this idea of Sunsetting all these federal programs and requiring uh, reauthorization every X number of years, and the White House and Biden, you know, pouncing on that and saying this is the Republican position. Now, I think entitlement programs just mathematically must be reformed for future seniors. We've been kicking and kicking and kicking the can so recklessly for so long. But the sunset idea where you'd have to reauthorize, uh, reauthorize rather Social Security and Medicare all the time. They're treating it at the White House like it is a truly heinous, monstrous thing to suggest. However, I just want to point out that the best thing about Joe Biden being around for as long as he's been around is that he has basically had every position on every issue you can imagine, and then you can just pull up speeches and things that he has said and proposed in the past And you've got a pretty good chance of having evidence against whatever his current position might be for political reasons. So lo and behold, the Hill reporting. President Biden, as a first term senator in 1975, introduced a bill that would have limited budget authority for all federal programs to between four and six years, which experts say would have required new legislation to fund Medicare, Social Security and other programs. The Biden measure bore striking resemblance to the plan Senator Rick Scott unveiled in 2022. Biden at the time argued that many federal programs were operating on autopilot and that wasn't a good way of doing business. And he said that we should revisit it every couple of years and decide if the programs are still working properly. It is almost indistinguishable. Like zooming out, it is almost the Rick Scott proposal. It was just the Joe Biden proposal in 1975. So that's pretty special. President Biden is using his current big cudgel against the Republicans. It's something that he himself proposed as a U.S. senator. That's fun, at least to me. Now, that's 1975. That was 10 years even before I was born. What about 10 years after I was born? So 20 years later, mid-90s, I know we're told that any sort of change to Social Security or Medicare is an outrage and an attack on our seniors and how could anyone think of such a thing well here is united states senator joe biden in 1995 talking about the many times he tried to freeze spending on those programs listen to cut 24
3: when i argued that we should freeze federal spending i meant social security as well i meant medicare and medicaid i meant veterans benefit. i meant every single solitary thing in the government And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time.
2: Four whole times he tried to freeze Social Security and Medicare. But trying to reform it for future seniors? Well, how could the Republicans even talk about such a thing? There really is, like with, this was sort of a cliche, with Trump there was a tweet for everything. With Biden, there's a soundbite or a Senate speech or legislation for everything. It's amazing how true that is. Also, just listen to him talk in 95 versus today. I mean, it is, it is striking, the difference. Now, the White House has tried to distance Biden from his own positions, of course, saying, oh, that, that, his sunsetting provision that he put forward in the 70s and then the spending freeze thing in the 90s, that, that's, that's not really relevant. The real issue is Republicans and Rick Scott and whatever. I don't think this was a helpful thing that Rick Scott did. I think Republicans have to be very smart about how they message this stuff. But it is helpful with all the demagoguery happening when Joe Biden himself has done exactly this stuff, like verbatim. Brian Riedel, who's a longtime budget wonk on Capitol Hill at Manhattan Institute, we have him here on the show a lot. He also points out if 1995 is too distant for you, back in 2011, Biden was the leader of the negotiations with the Republicans on deficit reduction, part of a grand deal that they were talking about in 2011. And it included so many changes to Social Security and Medicare, Riedel reminds us, that Obama and the administration actually had to hit the brakes on what Biden was doing. Then Riedel snarks, then Biden got elected president and turned into Elizabeth Warren. Right so let's sunset all the programs and reauthorize in the 70s let's freeze every single program including social security medicare in the 90s let's reform social security medicare make changes in a grand deal in 2011 and now we've got president Biden and he wants and his team wants to make it seem like all of those things never happened were never said out of sight out of mind the republicans are the bad guys and i just think look we have a virtual paper trail We have sound bites, We have legislation and just a walk down memory lane, a couple of flashbacks to bring to your attention as we think about some of the contours of the upcoming debt ceiling debate and hopefully some debates about reigning and spending in the future. Although, uh, you know, my optimism there is is uh, relatively low at the moment. With Trump, there was always a tweet. With Biden, there's always a quote. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Please stay tuned.
1: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
2: I'm Guy Benson. Some news breaking earlier this afternoon, the office of Senator John Fetterman, the newly elected senator from Pennsylvania, a Democrat, announcing that the senator has checked himself into Walter Reed for treatment of clinical depression. So this comes on top of the after effects of that massive stroke that he suffered where he has major lasting damage. And says he often has trouble – there's a New York Times story just about this the other day – has trouble understanding people, hearing people. He says it sounds like the adults in the peanut cartoons. That's what he hears oftentimes when people are speaking to him. And he's got all these different ways that they're trying to accommodate some of these challenges that he's got. It's making life very hard, and it seems like the window of full recovery, at least my understanding is, is closed or closing – and there were people quoted saying, based on the damage that was done, he really shouldn't have been out there on the campaign trail doing what he was doing. But he was, he was shoved out there to do it. Now we've got this clinical depression issue. He's checked himself into the hospital. Thank God he did that. I hope he gets all the help that he needs. There should not be stigma around that at all. Also, you have to wonder about the consultants and the campaign people and other people around him in his life who were pushing this man to continue a campaign that he was clearly not fit to continue. Look, I mean, politically, they won, but you've got to put your health first. And there are some struggles here. We're wishing him the best, but I think some people need to do some introspection around him.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Back on the Guy Benson Show, guybensonshow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. A little Shania on the live broadcast. Man, I feel like a woman. I guess we got to talk about this Don Lemon thing today, huh? They've got this new CNN morning show that my understanding is is not doing terribly well. Put it nicely. Don Lemon was taken out of his Don Lemon Tonight slot by the new management at night. Put him in the morning with... Two women, Poppy Harlow and Caitlin Collins. And I guess some of the trade publications and gossip columns are reporting that not only are things not really clicking in terms of ratings, just on set, it's been awkward and there's been some tension among the hosts and there have been some strange on-air exchanges where it seems like Don is kind of bullying some of the ladies and there's just been some drama around this show. So it got really awkward this morning when the issue of Nikki Haley and her presidential announcement came up. And one of the things that she was calling for was a change in generations, a generational shift in leadership, saying over a certain age, you know, candidates and presidents should have some sort of mental competency test. Just as a reminder of some of what she said yesterday, here's cut 16,
5: In the America I see, the permanent politician will finally retire. We'll have term limits for Congress (laughs) and mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. Today our enemies think that the American era has passed. They're wrong. America is not past our prime, it's just that our politicians are past theirs. (laughs)
2: All right. So one of the big applause lines, I noted it yesterday while I was watching live. I tweeted about it. We played that clip once or twice on yesterday's show. America is not past our prime. It's just that some of our politicians are past theirs. Clearly a shot at Joe Biden. And I would say pretty obviously as well, although maybe less direct, a critique of Donald Trump, right? That was more oblique, but I think also applies. That was the takeaway. Big cheer from the crowd. So now you got Don Lemon, who I'll remind you is one of their journalists, right? Not an opinion host, apparently, even though you would watch some of the stuff that he's been saying now for years. And it's just, you know, straight up editorializing an opinion. And he's, you know, out there on the left. And that's fine. I just don't love when they present people who are Partisans as journalists, but be that as it may, Don Lemon, I guess, saw the clip. And if you look at the very online left and the activist left and the identitarian left, they've been piling on Nikki Haley for the last couple of days because she is a woman of color who's a conservative, and so they hate that. This is something that I can relate to as a gay conservative. I'm not supposed to be conservative, and so. You get a bunch of nasty grams incoming because you're a sexuality trader. In her case, she's a double whammy, a race trader and a sex trader. I mean, this is how this happens. I mean, my goodness, talk to Clarence Thomas. There was a Georgia Democrat in the state Senate down there in Georgia this week on the floor publicly objecting to a statue being erected of Clarence Thomas in the state of Georgia, calling him explicitly an Uncle Tom. Just the words that he said. I was on Varney this morning on FBN, and I made the point, there is a special level of venom and vitriol reserved for conservatives or right-leaning people who are not, quote-unquote, supposed to think the way that they do. And as I said, I've experienced some of that a little bit. I think other people like Nikki Haley uh, and others have clearly experienced quite a lot of it, and we're seeing it. In a very nasty way, playing out this week, a lot of people doing sort of the, uh, that's not really her name, she's ashamed of her heritage game, also embarrassing themselves because they're factually wrong about a bunch of it. But there's a sort of all this innuendo and, oh, she's not real. she's really with the racist, she's not with us, she's crazy, I mean. There were some horrible things, of course, said on the nationally televised Daily Insane Asylum of The View. It's just been a whole kind of avalanche of this stuff. Which brings us to today and this Don Lemon clip that I've been now teasing. We're going to play it in a second. But Don Lemon, I guess, was sitting there watching this clip of Nikki Haley saying that some of the older generation politicians are past their prime. It's not America's issue being past our prime. It's some of these old politicians being past theirs. Let's pass the torch. That's the message, right? And Don Lemon's brain thinks, you know what? She's past her prime. Let's Google. I'm going to Wikipedia how old that Nikki Haley is. And I'm going to figure out a way to say that she's over the hill to make her uh, look like a hypocrite. That is what Don Lemon, I guess, decided would be a good idea. Then he formulated the talking point, had done a tiny bit of research about it, it seems, and then said, yes, I'm going to go ahead and say these things on national television, seated in between his two female co-hosts. It is astounding that he made a series of choices that led to cut 17, but he did.
6: She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime. Sorry when a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. What do you That's, call- not, acor- Wait. I, that's not according to me. Prime for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll, if, you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say 20s, 30s, and 40s. I don't necessarily. 40s. Have, oh,
0: I got another I'm that's saying I agree
6: with that. So I think she has to be careful about saying that, you know, politicians aren't in their prime. We need to need qualify.
0: To are you talking about prime for, like, I mean, childbearing Or are you talking shoot about the prime just for say being president? What the
6: facts are Google it. Everybody at home, when is a woman in her prime? It says 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I'm just saying Nikki Haley should be careful about saying that politicians are not in their prime and they need to be in their prime when they serve, because she wouldn't be in her prime, according to Google, know, Google or whatever it is.
2: Just the, the reaction from Poppy and Caitlin, the facial expressions, the interjections, uh, priceless. Now, far be it for me to question whether Don Lemon is an expert on women. Let's put it that way. But I will mansplain a little bit about how imbecilic this is. And he's put out a quasi-apology. He's walked it back. I'll read that to you here in a second. But he's just like, yeah, let me get on the, old, the Google machine. I want to dunk on a female conservative who I hate. She's saying basically that the 80-year-old president is past his prime. So let me, let me see if the Google machine will give me a reason to say Nikki Haley, who's in her early 50s, is past her prime. Oh, I, I guess someone said here that women in their twenties and thirties maybe their forties maybe that's the prime I mean not not early fifties. Don't shoot the messenger he says just it's the facts Google it like this is like the trust the science on you know ladies <laughs> from Dodd Lemon and the women flanking him are like what like prime for what like child. Childbearing years? What exactly is the argument here? That because some Google response, maybe about like fertility is 20s and 30s, Nikki Haley is past her prime to be a political leader? What? Now, many people made a ton of responses to this, and it's hard to quite know where to begin. People are pointing out how many women have accomplished massive things in the prime of their career, the things that they are most prominent or famous for well after the age of 50. One example being Margaret Thatcher coming to power as prime minister in her mid-50s and then, of course, being a massive force in global politics and, of course, in U.K. politics for more than a decade from that point forward. She was, what, prime minister for 11 years or something? I think it was 11 or 12. I guess she started as PM after her prime, according to Dr. Lemon. He knows about the ladies. Don't shoot the messenger. It's the facts. Google it, man. Then there's the minor point that Don Lemon is in his mid-50s. Nikki Haley is several years younger than Don Lemon. Would Don Lemon say that Don Lemon is past his prime? I'm not saying that like he's out of prime time, because we know that's already happened to him. I'm saying his prime. Would he say that as a, as a broadcaster, as a wage earner, as someone contributing to the national conversation, however he views himself, a husband, does he consider himself in his mid-50s, past his prime obviously not he's reportedly very salty that he's out of prime time he's like oh they're sticking me with these two women in the morning he's mad about that he feels like he should be have his own show in better tv real estate in his own mind so clearly don doesn't think he's past his prime but that's different because he's a man I am not being, by the way, uncharitable here. I know sometimes people can say something and it comes out wrong. I'm sure he would like to have this one back. Although he was really doubling down on it in the clip that you heard. This is explicitly his argument. Early 50s is past prime if you're a woman and you're Nikki Haley. By the way, I wonder if Kamala Harris is off somewhere, the vice president, watching that clip from one of her fanboys, Don. She's in her late 50s. She's older than Don. I mean, was she nervously laughing, grabbing some Sharpies and making Venn diagrams on how she feels about what was said? I mean, you can say all sorts of things about Kamala Harris and her effectiveness as a politician and her instincts as a leader and all of that. The idea that, oh, no, she's way past her prime because she's a woman. Also, I am willing to bet $10,000 that Don Lemon voted for Hillary Clinton, right? By his own definition here, which I guess is a two-second Google result that he decided was, you know, the official factual science, Dr. Lemon, he voted for someone who was way past her prime, you would think, at the time with Hillary Clinton. What was she in her late 60s? At the time that when, she, when she last ran for president, I believe— And it's, it's like there are multiple levels of sexism here. Because I know a lot of women talk about how there's a sense that women more than men age out of, age out of being sexy or attractive. He wasn't even making that point. I, by the way, Nikki Haley I think is beautiful. And it's irrelevant. What he was making the point is, oh, no, she is like over the hill past her prime to be a political leader because she's what, like 51 or something? Unlike Don Lemon, who I think is 56, who's very much in his prime, if you ask him. But the difference is, I mean, he's a man. He's a man and an expert on the prime of women's lives, which Nikki Haley has passed very much unlike him. Ooh. Choices were made. <laughs> Choices were made. By Don. Even just listening to it again. I had seen the clip earlier. First I read the quote. I was like, did he really? I watched the clip, I'm like, oh man, who boy, he did. The faces on these women sitting right next to him. Think about all the women fifty plus that this guy interacts with and works with every day. He didn't even think about any of that stuff. It did not occur to him. How incredibly insulting this was and wrong, because the number one priority was bad conservative must attack. Let's make her look like a hypocrite. And if that means insulting basically half the population, you know, it was coming from a good place. I'm surprised this isn't the way that he's apologizing. It came from a good place in my heart, which was to attack a woman of color who's a conservative and ought not to be. I wasn't talking about all the good past the prime women. Sorry, older ladies including women younger than I am. I was talking about just her. I was trying to insult her, not all of you guys. And I'm on the team. So Lemon, early this afternoon, put out a little statement on the Twitter. So here's, here's Dr., Dr. Lemon, OBGYN. <laughs> the reference I made to a woman's prime this morning was inartful and irrelevant. As colleagues and loved ones have pointed out, and I regret it. A woman's age doesn't define her either personally or professionally. I have countless women in my life who prove that every day. Okay. I wonder if he did one of those like AI statement generators for this one. I regret it is the closest thing he comes to apologizing to any number of people who might be offended by what he said, but specifically to the woman that he meant to insult. And of course there was not an apology to Nikki Haley because I'm not sure he can bring himself to do that. Now, if this gets bad enough for him, I I think we'll probably see uh, an even more significant prostration of himself. We might have to see something on the air tomorrow morning. That could be interesting. Maybe people might tune in for once to see what he might have to say on this. To backtrack, you know who's thrilled, by the way, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley's digital team, Nikki Haley's fundraisers. It's like an in-kind contribution from CNN, quote unquote, anchor Don Lemon with just like a 10 out of 10 sexist comment directed squarely at her that has now pissed off a ton of people across the spectrum. If I didn't know better, and we all do, you'd think he might have been a plant for Nicky. Not the case. Okay, my mansplation, or mansplanation, I don't even know what what the term is, of this is now concluded. But my guess is the apology tour from Don isn't quite over. Ooh, things might be a little icy on that couch, around that desk, on that show for a while. Icier still than it already has been, allegedly just saying the facts google it man we'll be right back
1: fresh conservative talk guy benson show
6: out of the gates and ready to go hey it's hunting with ro hot mike is here on the outkick network we've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion and it's available wherever you find your audio daily analysis and news he is hot i am mike actually my name is chad <laughs> His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you're subscribed to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
2: Back on the Guy Benson Show. By the way, I just saw this Nikki Haley tweeted minutes ago. To be clear, I am not calling for competency tests for sexist middle-aged CNN anchors, only for people who make our laws under 75-plus. So there you go. Meanwhile, Los Angeles Times with a story about the ongoing exodus from California. Mapping how California's population has decreased by over half a million people in the last two years with a net exodus of more than 700,000 people over that time period. Meanwhile, Texas gained almost 900,000 people in population. Florida gained over 700,000 in population, California and New York both losing roughly half a million people, just over half a million people each during this mass exodus. I wish there was some sort of explanation for why people would be running away, sprinting away from California, New York, Illinois, to places like you know, Tennessee and Georgia and Florida and Texas, huh? What a mystery. Gavin Newsom wants to be president so badly. He can't explain this stuff, so he'll probably have to go on and scream about Ron DeSantis again. It seems like that's how he spends all of his time. Clearly not governing well. Another hour coming up. Guy Benson Show. Live from the most
1: powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
2: It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast always free when the show is over. At Guy Benson Show on Twitter. Also on Instagram. You can follow us there for some bonus content. Fox News alert as we begin this middle of three hours. The Dow really taking a hit today. Closing down 431 points ending the day at 33696 And with us to help make sense of that and related issues is Charles Payne, host of Making Money with Charles Payne, 2 p.m. Eastern every weekday on FBN, Fox Business Network, at CVPAYNE on Twitter. Charles, great to have you back.
6: It's great to be back, Guy. Thank you.
2: You bet. So let's just start with this. I know that the CPI numbers just came out. Uh, Earlier in the week, and people were going to be putting those under the microscope. And what they saw was not terribly good news. You know, there was a couple indicators saying, okay, maybe things are moving in the right direction. But digging slightly beneath the surface, even the New York Times said there's a lot of ominous stuff in the inflation numbers. Now we get the wholesale prices numbers earlier, and they rose 0.7% in January, more than expected, fueling inflation. That seems to be one of the themes this week. Things worse than the experts were anticipating. Put some of this into perspective. These numbers that we're learning about over the last couple of days.
6: Well, to your point, uh, inflation came down fractionally. I mean, just you know, uh, by the by the smallest of margins, and the growth of inflation came down by the smallest of margins. And still, uh, at six point four percent year over year, that's still the hottest, uh, you know, number before september of 2021 so the bottom line is that and i mean gone then that's before 40 years so this is still we're still in that realm where most i would say half the people at least listening in the audience have never even experienced this kind of inflation before this is a phenomenon that we kind of written off because we've gone for decades without it and so it has to be a very special set of circumstances to even spark something like that now the question is how do we get rid of it? Because even at the rate it's coming down, it's not fast enough. It's just—it's simply not fast enough to help uh, the average household out there. Uh, which may uh, put going into into President Biden's uh, administration uh, in, in 2021, households were sitting on the best conditions ever with respect to disposable income after they paid their bills. Corporations were sitting on the most money ever. They layered onto that a couple of trillion dollars extra. You know, they took vote buying to a different level. Before it was the chicken in every pot. Now it's just like, hey, you know what, Uh, go out and and buy yourself uh, a shopping spree. And the ramifications of that are still making its way through. And so you had households, particularly in the lower end of the economic spectrum, who had what they called excess cash or excess savings. That's, for the most part, gone for the bottom 50% of household incomes. Uh, and now they're dealing with real wages that are down. They've been negative year over year now 22 months. So all of that is squeezing everyone. In the meantime, you got the Federal Reserve, whose job oh, it and is by the way, to Biden. Biden keeps out. saying
2: the opposite, right? Like Biden comes out and says, "Oh, you know, wages are up." He keeps not telling the truth about that.
6: Well, you know, the, here's a the beautiful thing about a politician, right? They get to tout what we call nominal numbers, uh, and the American public gets to feel inflation adjusted numbers the real deal so yes uh if you if every week you went to the supermarket with $200 and you came out with four bags uh that was your daily routine if i gave you $300 but you came out with three bags i can brag that i gave you 300 bucks you got to raise with me and you will come out of the store and say, "Yeah, but how come I'm getting less with it?" <laughs> so right. that's the dynamics that we're sitting at right now because you know he is he helped to spark uh, uh what's, what is now you know has been a runaway inflation, a wage price spiral because again you pay people not to work, uh, and, and then you you've got this scramble, this mad scramble, uh, and, and it's it's tough. It, we're this we're in a vice grip between those two things: uh, the the inflation that won't go away and the recession that is promised by the Federal Reserve.
2: So I want to get to the recession worries here in just a second. But last point on inflation, with the wholesale prices coming out, again, hotter than expected. When you look at CPI, core CPI, it was worse than expected. You look at some of the key areas where people actually spend money regularly, where they actually feel it in their wallet, and and you can't really hide it. Those were worse in some respects than they had been. Uh, you know, month to month up. It's it's still scary out there. And it seems like this is gonna take a while to resolve and to unwind this whole thing. I know we saw the State of the Union. There was this bragging, you know, look at what we've done. Uh there seemed to be a lot of high fiving about how okay the soft landing is coming. Look how great the economy is. There are some weird things here, Charles, because, you know, we're talking about the inflation numbers bad. You look at some of the economic outlook indicators that are very worrisome. But then retail sales last month rebounded dramatically in a good way. The the jobs number last month was huge. So you can look at certain stats and say, "Wow, look at this, this economy that's not just recovering, it's, it's doing very well. Then other major data points that really seem like they're pointing in the exact opposite direction, when you put all of that into your brain – and try to output an actual narrative here and make sense of what's happening for the average person. What's the explanation of, the, of all of this dissonance? Well,
6: the retail sales number is not adjusted for inflation. So uh, if it costs you a million dollars to buy one egg – uh, you know, the the supermarket sold one egg that that day and did a million dollars. It doesn't mean that there was necessarily a huge influx at the ban, right? I mean, it's it, it just the resale sales may reflect more the the idea that uh, prices are up. You know, there were a few niches in there the, the, uh, uh, that were intriguing to me. Department stores where there was some heavy discounting and discount cards were up. And, of course, that always intrigues me because they are supposed to go out of business 40 years ago. And restaurants. Restaurants have done extraordinarily well. Some of that, too, is cost-living adjustments and Social Security. Almost 9% seniors get that money. They want to go out to Denny's for the Grand Slam breakfast. And also young people are are dining out. It's just a thing to do right now to be pent up. But as far as the jobs report and some of these other numbers, you know, one of my big problems, and it was a theme of my show today, is the data itself is really bad? It really, really is awful. Um, these are mostly surveys, and the amount of people that are taking these surveys. These, are, for instance, there's six hundred fifty thousand businesses, twenty one thousand take the survey. Uh, more are scheduled to take it, but they're just not filling out the forms. Only thirty percent of, the, of the, US, uh, the the companies that have agreed to be part of the the job openings. Only thirty percent of them are filling out the forms anymore. Is that Same unusual? With that job is that support. low? It, oh, it's very low. It has come down so much. Even the job support—I uh, think in September it was under fifty percent of the companies that were supposed to fill out the survey because it's all voluntary. Voluntary did only less than fifty percent filled it out. So we're talking about small data sizes to begin with, being ex- even smaller because people aren't filling these things out. So it's you know what I think is a better gauge of this is. What I've seen with the savings rates, for instance. So our savings rates plummeted to, in last September to 2.3%, the second lowest in history. All of a sudden we're at 3.4% by December. I think American households are bracing for something. Credit cards, uh, we finished the year at nine nine $930 billion outstanding credit card debt. Again, a record, and we were up like 20% in the last quarter. It just went crazy. The last credit card rate we we got came in far less than expected. So, you know, the, the government data is one thing. What people are doing is another thing. And what they're doing is that they're hunkering down. They're concerned. They're worried. So, yeah, they'll go to a restaurant uh, because eating at, eating at a restaurant, is cheaper than eating at home. Egg prices are up 70%. You might as well go to, you know, to, to again, to your nearest Denny's or Taco Bell. But they didn't go to, they didn't go to Chipotle. So the, what the American people are actually doing is, is 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 buckling down for something really, really ugly as they deal with inflation.
2: Well, and that brings us now to the recession conversation, because, you know, there were people saying, OK, this is going to be a very hard landing, a, a really tough recession. Then a lot of the experts started to say, eh, maybe not in 2023. And some people were pushing it off maybe to 2024 and maybe not that bad a recession. It's kind of a soft landing. How do you start to think about 2023 versus 2024? What kind of? "Quote unquote," landing. This is going to look like. I can tell you, Charles. Uh, I know someone well who just had hundreds and hundreds of layoffs announced at their company this week, and it was sort of like you know, bracing for impact. Am I going to get that email? Uh, person that I know didn't get laid off, but hundreds of people did. Big company. You're right. There are there are breadcrumbs here that seem to be pointing in a distressing direction, but they're at least somewhat offset by some of these other numbers. As you consider that R word and how that would look and when it would arrive, what's your thinking on that these days?
6: My thinking has been shallow recession the whole time, in part because of the resilience, the built-in resilience of our economy. Um, I I hope for a soft landing. And you're right, that last FOMC meeting, uh, Jay Powell used the word disinflation 13 times. At the December meeting, he used it zero times. He's acknowledging that the economy is, that inflation is coming down, uh, which means maybe the Federal Reserve won't do, be as aggressive as they can be in wrecking this economy. Um, but we also had this week, uh, we had Philadelphia Fed and Empire Fed, um, manufacturing data. And what was bothersome there is that prices paid for these manufacturers went up again after they've been, been coming down. So it's it's just really the, – the direction we're going in, I'm thinking the best we can hope for would be a shallow recession. We can call it a soft landing, but a shallow recession. And it's all going to probably be predicated on how far the Federal Reserve goes because we're naturally falling we're, – we're naturally coming down. The, the the excess cash, the excess savings that was $1.4 trillion is under $1 trillion now. As I mentioned, the bottom half of households have already spent their money. So we need to, you know, the the economy is moving down. It's pulling back to gravity. The money is gone. Uh, The inflation is still here because of the hangover effect. And I think the best we can get is is a shallow recession.
2: All right. Well, obviously, you watch this stuff very, very closely. We will keep tabs with you and some of the other experts as these months unfold. A lot of noise out there in the data. And we love getting really to the bottom line with Charles Payne. Making Money is a show, FBN, every weekday, 2 p.m. Eastern. Charles, thank you so much.
6: You too, Guy. Thanks, buddy.
2: Let's take a break. We'll come right back. The latest out of Ohio on that train derailment. Straight ahead. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Yesterday, we briefly spoke about the train derailment in Ohio. I'd call it East Palestine. It's East Palestine, Ohio. These toxic chemicals spilling out. There was concern about the air. Even more concern about the water and the water supply. On Fox and Friends earlier, some of the residents of the community described what they had been feeling physically now in the aftermath of this derailment. Here's just a few of the examples. Cut five.
7: Are you experiencing
4: any symptoms? A little lightheaded. And my lips did get all tingly yesterday when we went to clean up the house. It smells terrible up around the house. And there is black residue on the picture surface stuff. I hit a cloud of something down in there. that It put me in. I went to the hospital. It was worried about me having a. I've been so stressed out. They they put me on an EKG thinking I'm going to have a freaking heart attack because of my stress being so high. I want to know what I sucked in.
2: And then another resident talked about going home and throwing up within 10 minutes of being inside the house, the air being bad. As I mentioned, there's the water concern as well. And local officials are trying to get their arms around this, saying things are improving. I know that the rail company has been offering residents $1,000 checks, 1000 bucks, from Norfolk Southern, And these payments, obviously attractive. It's a grand. But some attorneys, like Aaron Brockovich-style, saying, nope, don't accept that because then they might close the book on you. You're not open to any other damages and checks perhaps in the future. So they're urging some of the residents just to hold off on that. There was a town hall meeting about this last night. And notably, the rail company didn't show up. And there was no one from the federal government, is my understanding, from the administration who was there. One of the residents asked pretty angrily, Where is the transportation secretary? And the mayor of the town said something I think very interesting, cut 13 in response. <laughs> I don't know. Your so, in case you had trouble hearing that, because the quality wasn't great. A citizen got up and asked the question, where is Pete Buttigieg, where is he at? And the mayor, Trent Conaway, says, I don't know, your guess is as good as me. Yesterday was the first time I heard anything from the White House. This has been, what, well over a week, two weeks, ballpark now? And the White House, the administration, just reached out to the mayor of the town for the first time yesterday or the day before? This reminds me of... Our transportation secretary, not commenting publicly on this, commenting publicly on all sorts of stuff. There's too many white people in construction. Oh, let's talk about the school, university shooting in Michigan, all this other stuff. But here's something actually under the purview of the Department of Transportation, and publicly it was just silence for a week and a half from the secretary of transportation, whose qualifications for that job still kind of elude me here. I think they've eluded a lot of people, frankly. Maybe you would send Buttigieg himself or a top deputy to be there, being responsive, listening to the concerns of the residents, but I guess they were just MIA. Perhaps there was some media appearance that the secretary had to be at. And he could fly a private jet to that as opposed to East Palestine, Ohio. Maybe Pete Buttigieg was anticipating tough questions about this. Next time, every once in a blue moon, he comes on Fox with Brett Baier, and then he can have these perfectly constructed smackdown answers with a furrowed brow about how ridiculous the question was. And some resistance wine moms and liberal gays will clap like trained seals on social media. Maybe that's what he was up to. I don't know. But this is obviously a very tough situation. I hope that there's accountability and answers. I hope that there's safety restored to this community. And you can hear the concern and the voices of the people that we just heard from. And, you know, asleep at the switch, apparently as usual, the Biden administration waiting until it becomes a political problem, political liability. And then they're like, Oh gosh, gee, maybe we should pretend to care a little bit about this. Send a tweet, you know, put, put Pete on the Sunday shows and, He will have some soothing, authoritative-sounding paragraphs to recite with the cameras rolling as he waits to see if maybe he might get put on the ticket next time. I don't know. I don't know what the comms strategy is over there. But it seems like comms in politics often comes first over response, substance, accountability, you know, the job. When we come back, the New York Times has a little mini- tempest on its hands from hundreds of its contributors saying that the new york times is very very biased not against conservatives no no no. against another group of people we'll explain when we come back
1: talking about the issues you care about guy benson
2: just past the halfway point on the Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. It's our website podcast is free, on demand when the show is over. With us now, Nate Hockman, ISI fellow at National Review. Nate, good to have you back here.
7: Hey, thanks for having me, Guy. good to be back.
2: Yeah, you bet. So I saw you had a piece up at National Review about this little mini journalistic insurrection at the New York Times with a few hundred contributors publishing an open letter condemning the New York Times. These are contributors to the Times condemning the paper for what they say is editorial bias. I think a lot of conservatives in the audience are probably nodding. Okay, yes, there's a lot of editorial bias at the New York Times. Uh, Maybe not quite this way. What was the complaint?
7: Right. So the allegation in this open letter yesterday, which I think has more than 200 Signatories of New York Times contributors now is that the New York Times has a right wing editorial bias against transgender people, which not just for conservatives, but for anyone living in the reality based community, sounds insane. If you actually look at the New York Times coverage of transgender issues, it is a pretty standard progressive line. But what these activist writers are upset about is essentially that there have actually been a few here and there relatively balanced reported pieces and opinion pieces. You know, explaining the other side of the position in the debate over the transgender movement, which, by the way, is often something that the majority of Americans believe. So anything that is at all letting in a dissenting position at all for these activist writers is construed as having an editorial bias against the transgender movement, which, again, is absurd. But it has clearly caught on in some progressive circles, and now they're trying to take The New York Times to the cleaner for it.
2: Yeah, and it seems to me like a lot of these people, and they might consider themselves journalists, they are activists, and what they are angry about is that the New York Times is not in complete lockstep left-wing ideological activism mode in terms of every single word that is published on transgender-related issues in that newspaper. And, I mean, it's it's sort of a breathtaking thing to watch, but I think this is what the left does – they, they bully, they attack, and they are especially good and effective at it when it comes to people who generally agree with them, people within the tribe, working the refs, basically shaming any semblance of journalistic integrity or intellectual honesty or intellectual curiosity. And I feel like they might not be able to really move the needle with you or a national review or something like that. But with the New York Times, they're like, hey, these are our people – the Times has shown itself to be rather weak before and, you know, having these meltdowns in the newsroom. So why not take a shot at it and, and basically try to bully and bombard them into becoming more openly, aggressively activist?
7: Exactly. To be clear, this is a debate between people who are more liberal than 80 percent of Americans and people who are more liberal than 95 percent of Americans. It's right. already a debate within progressive circles. But look, what this uproar is about, in essence, is that these activist journalists see newspapers like the New York Times as theirs. They think it belongs to them. And conservatives aren't supposed to get a hearing because the point ultimately in their mind isn't reporting or journalism. It's political activism. And that means that any effort to give a fair hearing to conservatives is an unacceptable concession and looks like bias. Them. It's not actually about bias or balance. If you look at New York Times coverage of the transgender issue for five seconds, you don't have to be conservative to reach this conclusion. Just a same person. You'll realize that it's biased very much towards the left, like most left-wing newspapers. But it's not actually about bias. It's about power and control of the narrative, mm-hmm. yep. and letting in any dissenting voices or critics threatens that mission.
2: Did you happen to see the piece written at the Free Press – Last week or we have, uh, last week or earlier this week by the woman who worked for years at the pediatric gender clinic in St. Louis, a very left-wing queer woman who said this is way out of control, this is not science, this is something entirely different. I saw a lot of people piling on her, criticizing her like fellow travelers, fellow leftists, saying this is outrageous and by the way this should not have been published. Because there was no effort to reach out to the other side and give a fair hearing to people who might disagree. And like the obvious response is the other side is utterly dominant right now in our culture, which is controlled for the most part by tastemakers on the left. The idea that you would need to give balance to a firsthand account of what someone saw for four years at their work I think also goes to this sense of entitlement that a lot of people do not want the orthodoxy questioned in any forum, and they will come after anyone who dares to even lightly do so.
7: Right. And in the case of this uh, former caseworker at the Missouri Youth Transgender Clinic, for all intents and purposes, she is on the other side. I mean, if I remember correctly, in the opening paragraphs of that free press piece, she said – Uh, that she was married to a transgender man, and she described herself as to the left of Bernie Sanders' politics. So we are not talking about a frothing-at-the-mouth right-wing culture warrior here. She's someone who who joined the clinic because she believed in its mission originally. The amount of sort of horrific things that she must have had to be able to see to sway her from that position and to actually motivate her to speak out against her own side – or it's it's overwhelming. You don't just right. have a political transformation like that from being that kind of ideologue overnight. And what she describes seeing, and there's no reason at all, no incentive, structure, motivation to think that she's being dishonest, is truly horrific. Right? I mean, whatever you want to say about the larger debate over the transgender movement, what she was describing in this youth clinic. Was abusive. You had uh, very mentally ill, very vulnerable children coming in who had no business being put on these drugs, getting pumped full of these drugs uh, as, a, as a first response, and uh, total uh, dishonesty and, and a lack of responsibility, a lack of care from the doctors when a lot of them went on to be injured by those drugs. That was the account that she was describing. And we've seen similar stories surfacing. Uh, from youth transgender clinics like that one across the country. That's the kind of thing that we should be having a healthy public debate about, to say the least. And the New York Times is still the nation's paper of record. If it can't be a platform for that debate, then we really don't have a functional media, a a functional fourth column anymore. Of course, that's exactly what these activists want. They want it to be an activist tool, not journalism.
2: Yep, that's the goal. And that woman, and we read extensively from her piece, she called what she witnessed – every day for four years, morally and medically appalling. That was her framing. And she knew, here's the thing, as you point out, she was on not just the left, but the hard left. And she was big into all of this stuff. She knew, based on the tactics that are used by activists, of which she was one for a long time, she knew what was coming to her by speaking out in any form of dissent. And she did it anyway, because she was horrified by what she saw happening to children, Based on a lack of medical science. And so, you know, my hat is off to her for going there. Nate, before you go, just quickly, I know that you've been writing about this as well. The endless train of so called outrages down in Florida, and it's like often the same people, right? From the same people who brought you the Don't Say Gay freak out, are the people who brought the books are now banned in Florida freak out who are now bringing you the black history has been erased in Florida freak out. It's just endless. And I know a lot of the time the argument is, well, Ron DeSantis is a culture warrior because of the things that he's doing. But a lot of the things that he seems to be doing, at least you know from my perspective, is just noticing and reacting to culture war stuff that is being foisted upon society and even kids in that state. That's at least how I view it but it seems like whenever a conservative or a leader of any sort or a republican or whomever when we notice things that the left is doing and object and try to do anything about it it's like oh well you know why are you waging this divisive culture war it's really an interesting way they go about this
7: right now this is always how it works the right is always the culture warriors. The left has never described as the culture warriors, despite the fact that they've been responsible for the provocations and the aggression in a lot of the culture war debates that we've seen over the last five years. The, you, know, you, you, can, you take the recent sort of gas stove freak out for an example. The, a, a functionary associated with the Biden administration said that he wanted to ban gas stoves repeatedly and explicitly. And then mm-hmm. a bunch of conservatives noticed that he said that and said, yes. hey, We would we would prefer if we didn't ban Gastos. And the headlines that just came from that were absurd. You know, the right brings gas stoves into the culture wars. The right tries to make gas stoves into a culture war issue. It's like, you no, know, the right is reacting to something that the left is doing. It's the exact same thing with Ron DeSantis down in Florida. He just happens to be particularly competent and effective at actually pushing back against stuff, which is one of the reasons that he's the source of so much hysteria. But what he's doing is effectively trying to restore <laughs> the cultural norms of 2015 <laughs> in a lot of yeah. places. And for that, he's seen as this crazy, you know, hard right radical.
2: And, Nate, this is a very deep pull for fans of one of my favorite shows of all time, Arrested Development. But there's this minor character in this comedy show who's an attorney named Bob Lobla. And he's doing one of those legal ads with a bunch of books behind him and, you know, criminal defense ads or slip-and-fall ads. And one of his lines is, to the camera. Why should you go to jail for a crime somebody else noticed? And that's what I kind of get reminded of in these circumstances (laughs) where the crime is conservatives noticing what they're doing. And the playbook, as you point out, is deny, deny, deny that it's happening until it is undeniable. And the people who have noticed are pointing out examples of it. And then it becomes either a culture war on their part for noticing Or good, and if you oppose the thing that they denied was happening, now all of a sudden it's bigotry and very dangerous. We've seen that pattern playing out a lot, and I know gaslighting is a term that gets maybe overused, but that's really how it feels a lot of the time.
7: Right. The phrase that I've heard some other conservatives use, which I think is perfect, is that's not happening and it's good that it is which is generally right. the sort of narrative that unfolds. You see it with gastos where it was crazy to suggest that they were going to be banned, and then you had this massive you know, flow of junk science write-ups about how actually we do need to ban gastos. You see it with critical race theory where you're simultaneously hearing that it's a right-wing conspiracy theory, that CRT is in public schools, and also full-throated defenses of CRT as something that should be in public schools. Uh, you know, there's, the, the two things logically are intellectually inconsistent, but that's not the point, again, because the media sources that are pushing these narratives are about activism. They're about achieving ideological goals. They're not about a fair portrayal of any set of issues and obviously with this new york times letter that we just saw that was a very candid honest expression of what these journalists and writers think the new york times is supposed to be all about yep very
2: revealing nate Hawkman at national review our guest thanks for stopping by we always appreciate it talk soon
7: thanks guy appreciate it
2: we will step aside we'll take this quick break we'll be right back right after this
1: guy benson will be right back
2: We continue on the Guy Benson Show, kind of picking up where we left off with Nate Hockman in the last segment. We were talking about Florida, some of the meltdowns and exaggerations, the book banning freakout. We've talked about this before. People made it seem like reading had been banned in Florida schools because dictator DeSantis wanted to fight culture wars. And if teachers dissented, they'd go to prison as felons. Right? This was the argument that was out there and Randy Weingarten, all these teachers unions getting spun up, and there were all these viral videos of bookshelves completely barren. No more books in these Florida classrooms and libraries. Look at what Ron is doing. And, of course, it was just absolute nonsense. It's not what the law said at all. The felony was providing, like, pornography to children. That's it. And what happened was a lot of these leftists in schools who hate DeSantis, and they're trying to do everything they can to hurt him, damage him politically, they decided to preemptively ban books themselves. They're like, oh, okay, let's completely misunderstand the law, engage in this frantic performance, and let's throw a bunch of books out of classrooms and say that he's requiring us to do it, even though that's just not even close to the truth. DeSantis actually wondered aloud yesterday, did the teachers' unions put out marching orders hey, take books away, film and photograph the empty shelves, and turn it into propaganda. I wouldn't be surprised. It seemed like this was something that was being done deliberately in some sort of organized way. The truth is that it was about clearly age-appropriate, sexually explicit stuff not being in school libraries or school classrooms for, like, little kids. And wouldn't you know it? As of the beginning of the current academic year in September of 2022, there were a total, this according to the Daily Signal, a total of 175 books actually removed under this policy. In the state, 175 books in the state, and a large majority of districts said they had not removed any books this academic year. Of the 175 total books taken off bookshelves for cause, In the state of Florida, 153 of them, so pushing 90% of them, were taken out because the district discovered the book, quote, was pornographic, violent, or inappropriate for the grade level, or inappropriate for the grade level. And DeSantis's team putting out some examples of not just graphic sexual descriptions in some of these books, but illustrations of sex acts very explicit in elementary schools. And you look at that, it would have to be blurred out for television, right? If we were to talk about this on Fox News, we would have to blur out the images. On cable news for adults, that's the type of book that we're talking about. But instead, they're like, oh, look, we had to, we had to ban on our own accord Rosa Parks biographies and books about Roberto Clemente because there was a racial aspect and Ron DeSantis has banned them. It's just completely a lie. You would think that maybe the education bureaucracy and the teachers' unions might want to spend their time actually doing their job better. I've seen some shocking stats in the last few days out of jurisdictions that have been controlled by the left forever. So the state of Illinois, the city of Baltimore are two examples. In 53 schools in the state of Illinois, 53 schools across that state, There is not a single student in that school who can do math at grade level. Across those dozens of schools, not a single one student who can do math at grade level. For reading, it's 30 schools that has that terrible stat. In the city of Baltimore, Democratic control forever. In the city of Baltimore, there are 23 schools with zero students proficient in math on top of that 20 more schools have only one or two students testing at grade level so that's what close to 50 schools in the city of baltimore where there are zero one or two total students who can do math and reading at grade level but the real enemy here apparently is ron desantis and the school choice movement for a starving funds from public schools because it's been trillions of dollars spent and COVID slush funds and all this money flying around school choice is about helping kids escape from failing rackets like this. That's why I think it's a civil rights issue and they'll dress it up and they'll distract every way they possibly can from the failures. And if they were doing their job and doing it well, and teaching kids effectively, they wouldn't be terrified of competition. That's the reality of it. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Shannon Bream, anchor of Fox News Sunday, is here. Looking forward to that chat next.
1: Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
2: It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free when the show is over. That's on demand. No charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram, you can follow me on those same platforms. Personally, at Guy P. Benson. This hour, is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Refreshing and delicious. It is alcoholic, so it's 21-plus only. Please always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. You can also order online, TheLongDrink.com. Joining me now, Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent at Fox News, anchor of Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings. Also host of the hit podcast, Live in the Bream, best-selling author. Her latest book is The Love Stories of the Bible Speak. Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith, coming out next month. And Shannon, it's always good to have you back. It is my treat.
5: Thanks for having me, Guy.
2: Now, Shannon, I just had an idea, just a brainstorm. I want to run it past you. Feel free to take it or leave it, as you will. But for the next book in the series of the of the Bible books that you're writing, perhaps you could do the 50-plus, past-their-prime women of the Bible speak. <laughs> What do you think? Hey,
5: and the thing is, there'd actually be a lot of good stories. Think right, about Sarah? Sarah. She didn't have a baby until she was 90. Exactly, was right? Examples.
2: That, that's chapter one right there. It's like, it <laughs> just came to mind. The show. I don't know where it came to me from today, but I thought I would offer that to you. Uh, and I'll just take a small, small chunk of whatever royalties uh, that you are able to <laughs> reap from that book moving forward. All right, Shannon. So a big week in politics, sort of a bunch of disjointed stories out there, including... The president today finally breaking his silence on these UFOs that have been downed by the U.S. military. I mean, I guess there was maybe a little bit of news in that statement. But in terms of an explicit, concrete explanation of what's happened, illuminating a lot of new facts, I'm not really sure that's what we got.
5: Yeah, and it kind of mirrors to me the briefings that different members of Congress have gotten. You know, you have senators coming out saying we actually learned almost nothing new or something that the general public doesn't already know. So is it a matter of the administration doesn't know? We're trying to be careful with the information we have. I don't know. But, yeah, we did not have any breaking headlines. It didn't feel like out of that uh, comment from the president.
2: Yep, and that was part of my concern because we had Brett Bayer here on the show yesterday, and we were talking about – one of the panel segments that we had done on Special Report early in the week, and already the drumbeat had started about maybe the president should speak. We've got to hear from the president. And I had said then, I'm definitely happy to hear from the president on this. I just want it to be worthwhile. I don't want to hear him come out and say things that we already know, slightly repackaged. I want actual information, tangible new information. Otherwise, it will feel like just them getting worried about the politics and the optics and not actually informing us of things. And it's kind of how it played out on this Thursday. I know the president's getting ready to go over to Europe to mark the anniversary of the Russian invasion. And I guess this was at least a placeholder for now. I'm not really sure how much it accomplished. Speaking of Biden, Shannon, with the reelection bid potentially looming, rumors are that it's going to happen. They're going to announce it. President Biden's 80. We heard from a Republican getting into the presidential race this week about, you know, the sort of the stale old names and, Politicians being past their prime and mental acuity tests for presidents or presidential candidates over the age of 75. Well, Biden is clearly above that age. He's undergoing a physical exam, which is, I guess, common practice this week. I just wonder, with the steady stream now of stories about his age and private worries about Democrats, And the polling that doesn't show that a lot of Democrats are thrilled about him running again, but they also kind of feel cornered and don't know where they would go otherwise. It's just kind of an interesting moment, as fascinating as the Republican race already is and certainly will become. What's happening on the other side with the incumbent president, I think, is a very interesting story, with little glimpses now playing out in certain media pieces that indicate – there's some trouble in paradise over there, but they're not really sure what to do about it.
5: Yeah, and one of the headlines today was about you know why these elite inside Democrats are now suddenly kind of running to the president's side. And the sub-headline in the article was they don't want Kamala Harris to match up with President Trump and President Trump to be reelected. I mean, that was basically the gist of the whole headline, that they don't know what their backup plan is. They don't know who's next on the bench that they could call up and feel confident about. So they've got worries.
2: Yeah. The Republican that I referenced a moment ago, Nikki Haley, former governor, former ambassador, she is now Republican number two in the contest ahead of 2024. President Trump was first out of the gate months ago. Now Nikki Haley. You know, there are names out there where you could easily come up with potentially 20 names that have been at least rumored to run. Josh Krasauer tells us he thinks the number is going to be below a dozen. I gave him the over-under of 12. He said definitely under which I hope he's right. I don't know about that. But Haley had previously said she wouldn't run if Trump was running. He is running. She's running anyway. And even though there's been a bit of a bumpy road in terms of some of the statements put out on social media and that sort of thing from the Trump camp, so far it's been not that hostile of a reception from Trump to Haley. What do you make of that, and what did you think of the speech yesterday, the rollout?
5: Well, listen, I mean, she's got some interesting things. I think she's got a compelling personal story. She does have the youth. If the argument's going to be it's time for the next generation of the GOP, Um, she's going to have to do a better job differentiating herself from Trump. And she says, you know, I'm not kicking to the side. I'm only kicking forward. It's about getting rid of President Biden as our president for a second term. I'm not going to go after people inside the tent. But you and I both know the GOP primary is going to get heated. I mean, she's going to get a nickname. He's going to come at her more forcefully than saying, oh, she followed her heart instead of her honor with deciding to run against me after she said she wouldn't. I think it's going to get a lot uglier than that. And she's going to have to, listen, she's a fighter. And I think that she'll be we she'll welcome that. I don't think she wants to start the fight, but once it does, I think she'll engage. Um, but you know, there are people who say she's shifted positions over the years. That you know, she was a Tea Party favorite early on. You know, ten, twelve years ago, um, she was against Trump, then she was with Trump, then she was against him after January yeah, sixth. Right. So she's, she's done some it's morphing. It's a tricky place. Yeah, it's a tricky place for her.
2: Yeah, and and she's got to figure out how to address that because there's the sense that she's kind of been a bit of a shapeshifter based on where she thinks. The party's headed and the political winds are blowing and then sort of like, oops, well, here's a little about face. I think it's fair to question that stuff and for her to have to respond to it. There is also a whole, um, a, a huge amount, I would say, of unfair attack being thrown her way upon her entrance into this race, often by the identity fixated left. This was my joke at the top about, you know, past the prime, we got uh, sexist comments from a CNN anchor who's now – not really apologized to her, but retracted what he said is his broader point. A lot of these people coming out saying that she's not really using her name because she's ashamed of her heritage and that sort of thing, even though the name that she goes by is her given birth certificate middle name. I saw someone who was attacking her for this herself uses her middle name as her first name. There's like no self-awareness. We saw this on The View a few months ago. This, this sort of seedy, ugly underbelly of the identitarian progressive left, and I feel like when you are the type of person who is not supposed to be a conservative, according to their rules, uh, the the nastiest, sharpest knives come out, and I actually wonder if the backlash and if some of that ugliness is actually helpful to her. Like, I wonder if she should send Don Lemon some flowers for almost certainly raising her some money and playing right into some of the narratives that she wants to launch the campaign with.
5: Yeah, I mean, it, it brings her high-profile headlines. If you go to her Twitter feed right now, it is all about Don Lemon. She's retweeting other people who are going after Don Lemon. She's retweeting people who say, hey, Wikipedia him, Google him. He's five years older than she is Is he passed his prime. People are ripping on him about ratings and everything else. So um, it's not a bad thing for her. I mean, it definitely kicks up the headlines. It will have people rushing to her defense. It will have people talking about how the left seems to be sexist, oftentimes when it comes to conservative women and the way they treat them. I mean, would he ever say something like that about Hillary Clinton? No, and if, and if, you know, a Fox anchor said something like that about Hillary Clinton, he would be the first one to be reporting on it. So, you know, it provides a lot of ammunition for her yep. um, and, and to, like, sort of, sort of a rallying cry for her.
2: Now, Shannon, I actually have no idea how old you are. You are certainly nowhere near past your prime. Timeless. You are the newly minted, fairly newly minted Fox News Sunday anchor. The show's been doing great. The ratings have been up, especially among young people. I say all this because I have to ask you about the experience that you had last weekend hosting your show. Because, I mean, what an epic setting for a Sunday news show, not in Washington, D.C., not right next to the corridors of power, but with a backdrop that, what, 113 million Americans would be looking at just a few hours later. Talk about your Super Bowl Fox News Sunday experience.
5: Oh my goodness, it was crazy to be thinking like I always say this. Like I'm some kid from Tallahassee who wore hand me downs. I'm pinching myself all the time. I show up at the White House. I show up at the Super Bowl. We had a set that was in the end zone, so it could not be more but you're fun. On the I field. Mean, on the field, it was nuts, and I, you know, I got to do our, you know. Uh, usual political stuff that's always going to be the core of the show but so much fun also to sit down with Howie and Michael and Terry and Coach Johnson and to be able to break down the game with them I mean I just pinch myself constantly it was a blast
2: how did that all come together obviously it was a Fox Super Bowl and I was trying to figure out you know I'm very blessed and humbled occasionally usually maybe once a month or so to come on and do the Fox News Sunday panel I was like how do I sign up for that one Right. Because with all due respect to the DC bureau, love it, love the studio, but I was like, I'm, there is some jealousy. I'll admit it.
5: You know, of the field was a little bit cooler. I, I'll give you that. <laughs> um, so we'll just we'll go ahead and listen. If we get to do this again in two years, I will put you at the top of the list.
2: How about oh. that? Uh, Can we please flag this, clip this, send it to everyone who will listen? This needs to be on the record. Shannon is a woman of her word, so let's just, like, make sure that we have this one two years from now. It would would be awesome. I've never been to a Super Bowl. Now, did you stay for the game and and take all of that in as well, or was and you know what? I, I will
5: say um, neither my team nor Sheldon's was anywhere sniffing near the, the Super Bowl, so we were trying to stay neutral, um, which I think is Im- impossible. I grew up a Dolphins fan, okay. so no danger of them getting to the Super Bowl this year. And Shell grew up a uh, Steelers fan, so they didn't love the Eagles, you know. But when I got there, yep. my seats were right next to the one and only Harris Faulkner, who was head to toe Chiefs gear. Yes, so so excited to be there. So I was like, we gotta cheer with Harris.
2: Then you were able to cheer for the winning team because you were exactly. following Harris's so lead. To and
5: Harris, we were on the right side of the whole thing. <laughs> and My husband is looking around like we're surrounded, sitting in Eagles' territory. He's like, "I'd like to get out of here, you know, without getting into a scuffle." Yeah, so in,
2: in one piece.
5: <laughs> let's let's try to keep the team advocacy to, you know, an acceptable level. But honestly, everybody was so kind and so excited to be there. Like I didn't see any shenanigans. It was a lot of fun.
2: What is it like to watch? the halftime show extravaganza from the stadium? Because watching at home, which is all I've ever done of these halftime shows, they have every single camera angle planned out to the second, and you get this incredible set of visuals, whereas I'd imagine it's really, really different watching it in person. What was that like, just based on your experience?
5: I mean, we... It was electric. I mean, these floating-looking platforms that they had, I could not believe Rihanna was going as high as she did. I don't know if it looked as scary on TV as it was in person, but I was like, there is no way. you know. And from the audience, we're trying to say, I'm like, is she pregnant? I think on TV maybe you got a better look at her. Um, and we were trying to figure that out. So, you know, we're breaking down everything. I was i was convinced that the people in the puffer costumes, like, those were coming off. Like, there's something bedazzled, some other outfit underneath there. So, um, you know, people said it was not going to be a super surprise. Surprising show. I think she stuck to her hits, and the baby was probably the surprise.
2: Yes, that was a surprise guest. By the way, I just had a brainstorm while you were talking about this. Maybe if you're going to do Fox News Sunday from the Super Bowl two years from now with yours truly as one of the panelists, it's a, it's a solemn vow that we heard here moments ago. I wonder if you could maybe add to the political analysis just for that show a telestrator. Like you could break down – Some presidential speech or something right after the State of the Union and, like, you know, do the Telestrator thing. I think that could be fun.
5: I do, too. I mean, we can map out this person blocked here, passed this resolution there. You know, we can do a whole DC thing. But I thought you were going to volunteer to do the halftime show, which, I mean, I'm all for that, too.
2: No, no, no. There's no talent that America needs to see. On that stage from yours truly involving music or dancing or anything like that. So I will I will shy away from that. I will help you with the Telestrator breakdown. Like here's Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee cutting off one of her colleagues to make sure she's right there on the aisle to shake the president's hand as she has for the last X number of State of the Union addresses. You can see this person. Boom. Like that's what I'm talking about. Little John Madden action. All right, Shannon Breen, before we let you go, this weekend, I know a lot of things are in flux. The news has been quite busy these last couple of days. What is in the hopper for Fox News Sunday in a couple days from now?
5: Well we have some guests. I don't know if we've 1,000% announced them publicly yet, but I can tell you we're going to have a heavy foreign policy focus. You're going to hear from someone from the White House. General Jack Keene has confirmed publicly with us, too. We're going to talk about the balloon, about China, about Ukraine as we hit this one-year anniversary. I think yep. there's another um, headline-making name that you will see as part of our show this weekend, too, and um, our panel. And we're really going to dig deep on foreign policy because I think there's so much as the president. Um, you know, We've got Munich going on, the vice president there, and, and so many um, fronts that I think they have a lot to explain about what the biden foreign policy is and where we go from here
2: okay so some heavy hitters yet unnamed showing up this weekend on fox news sunday check your local listings on your local fox station in the morning the show replays later on during the day on fox news channel the anchor of course is our friend our guest shannon bream chief legal correspondent at fox news and plus anchor of the show that we've been talking about check out the podcast live in the bream Best-selling author, the latest book coming out, it's March the 28th, so a little over a month from now, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. Shannon, we'll have to have you back to talk about the book when it's out. But in the meantime, have a great weekend, have a great show. We will talk to you very soon. See you soon, my friend. Our friend Shannon Breed. On The Guy Benson Show, we'll be back right after this.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
2: It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. I meant to mention this earlier in the week, but it slipped my mind until we were just talking in the last segment with Shannon Bream about the Super Bowl, her experience there, broadcasting from the Super Bowl, that set of Fox News Sunday in the end zone. Just awesome. One of the big controversies coming out of the Super Bowl on Sunday was that penalty flag, which we talked about on Monday. The defensive holding call toward the very end of the game that really helped seal the deal for the Chiefs to win it. And I know Eagles Nation, really angry about the call. A lot of people saying it was ticky-tack. I was among them. I think the, the ball was over his head. It didn't seem like that egregious of a hold. But, you know, you could see a little bit of a tug. I think it'll be debated for a while whether or not the flag should have come down. However, I was very surprised to see that after the game... The Eagles defender who drew the flag, the offender, James Bradbury, was asked about it, and he admitted to holding. I think this takes maybe some of the sting out of the argument from the Eagles fans when the actual Eagles player's like, yeah, I did it. Here was his quote. He said, it was holding. I tugged his jersey. I was hoping they would let it slide. Whoa. And I know some people were saying, well, he had to say that because he didn't want to get fined for criticizing the officials. No, he didn't have to say that. He could have just said, no comment, I'm not going to comment about it. He could have avoided the fine without endorsing the call, but he copped to it. He said, yep, I did some holding, and I was hoping I'd get away with it. I mean, that's significant to me. If you're a Chiefs fan, you're probably printing that out and just handing it to every Eagles fan who complains for the next year. Good for him, by the way. A little honesty there. Admission against interest, I think they call that in the law. So... Wanted to draw that to your attention. We'll break. We'll come right back. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show.
1: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
2: At the top of the last hour on The Guy Benson Show, we welcome back Charles Payne, host of Making Money on FBN, talking about the latest data on the economy, inflation, recession fears, and more. Here's part of that discussion with Charles Payne. I know that the CPI numbers just came out uh, earlier in the week, and people were going to be putting those under the microscope. And what they saw was not terribly good news. You know, There was a couple indicators saying, okay, maybe things are moving in the right direction. But digging slightly beneath the surface, even the New York Times said there's a lot of ominous stuff in the inflation numbers. Now we get the wholesale prices numbers earlier. And they rose 0.7% in January, more than expected, fueling inflation. That seems to be one of the themes this week, things worse than the experts were anticipating. Put some of this into perspective, these numbers that we're learning about over the last couple days.
6: Well, to your point, uh, inflation came down fractionally. I mean, just, you know, uh, by the the smallest of margins. And the growth of inflation came down by the smallest of margins. And still – uh, at 6.4% year over year, that's still the hottest, uh, you know, number before September of 2021. So. The bottom line is that, and I mean, gone, and that's before 40 years. So this is still, we're still in that realm where most, I would say half the people, at least listening in the audience, have never even experienced this kind of inflation before. This is a phenomenon that we've kind of written off because we've gone for decades without it. And so it has to be a very special set of circumstances to even spark something like that. Now the question is, how do we get rid of it? Because even at the rate it's coming down, it's not fast enough. It's just, it's simply not fast enough to help uh, the average household out there Uh, Which may uh, going into into President Biden's uh, administration in in 2021, households were sitting on the best conditions ever with respect to disposable income after they paid their bills. Corporations are sitting on the most money ever. They layered on to that a couple of trillion dollars extra. You know, they took boat buying to a different level. Before it was a chicken in every pot. Now it's just like, hey, you know what, uh, go out and, and buy yourself uh, go on a shopping spree. And we're, the ramifications of that are still making its way through. And so you had households, particularly in the lower end of the economic spectrum, who had what they called excess cash or excess savings. That's, for the most part, gone for the bottom 50% of household incomes. Uh, and now they're dealing with real wages that are down. They've been negative year over year now, 22 months. So all of that is squeezing everyone. In the meantime, you've got the Federal Reserve whose job oh, and it by is. By the way, to Biden, fire Biden keeps up. saying
2: the opposite, right? Like Biden comes out and says, oh, you know, wages are up. He keeps not telling the truth about that. Well,
6: you know, the, here's the beautiful thing about a politician, right? They get to tout what we call nominal numbers. Uh, and the American public gets to feel. Inflation-adjusted numbers—the real deal. So, yes, uh, if you—if every week you went to the supermarket with two hundred dollars and you came out with four bags, uh, that was your daily routine. If I gave you three hundred dollars but you came out with three bags, I can brag that I gave you three hundred bucks. You got a raise with me, and you will come out of the store and say, "Yeah, but how come I'm getting less with it?" <laughs> so right. that's the dynamics that we're sitting at right now because you know he is—he helped to spark. Uh, uh, what what is now you know has been a runaway inflation, a wage price spiral because again you pay people not to work, uh, and, and then you you've got this scramble, this mad scramble, uh, and, and, and it's, it's tough. It, it, we're this we're in a vice grip between those two things: uh, the, the inflation that won't go away, and the recession that is promised by the Federal Reserve.
2: So I want to get to the recession worries here in just a second. But last point on inflation. The wholesale prices coming out again hotter than expected. When you look at CPI, core CPI, it was worse than expected. You look at some of the key areas where people actually spend money regularly, where they actually feel it in their wallet, and, and it, you can't really hide it. Those were worse in some respects than they had been. Uh, you know, month to month up. It's it's still scary out there, and it seems like this is going to take a while to resolve and to unwind this whole thing. I know we saw the State of the Union. There was this bragging, you know, look at what we've done. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of high-fiving about how, okay, the soft landing is coming. Look how great the economy is. My full interview with Charles Payne, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, part of our free podcast, Every Day On Demand, Start to Finish, No Charge, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, com, or wherever you get your podcast. That includes Bonus Benson On the weekends. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Quiet Wyatt has a hot take that's going to get some pushback, I think. We'll get into all of that as soon as we come back. Stay with us.
1: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
2: Home stretch, Guy Benson show on this Thursday. Although for me, it's kind of Friday. I'm going on vacation tomorrow. I'll be off for a couple of shows back a little past the midway point of next week. So we'll fill you in on all of that when I'm back. We'll have some great guest hosts here, including at least one brand new option, a name that you know very well on the show. I believe trying his hand at guest hosting for the first time ever. I'm really excited to see how that goes next week. So stay tuned for all of that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, podcast free every day, whether I'm here or not. Plus, bonus Benson on the weekends. I saw this story, and it's very sweet, speaking about someone who was not past her prime at 50, which was more than half a century ago for her. Remember Sister Jean, if you're a college sports fan at all, A couple of years back, there was that magical run all the way to the Final Four, if I'm not mistaken, for Loyola Chicago, small school on the north side of Chicago. And their biggest superfan, Sister Jean, a nun at Loyola, was at all of the games wearing that Rambler red and gold. And she was almost like their good luck charm. She is now 103. Bless her soul. At 103, she is publishing... Her very first book, a memoir about faith and basketball. Just awesome. So I hope that does well. Get those royalties, Sister Jean. That's awesome. Now, speaking of winning basketball on the north side and northern suburbs of Chicago, Cut 26. Looking, working, driving inside. Hook is good seven to go. Hood Shafino for the win! Off the rim! Northwestern! Ooh, Boo Booey with two seconds left beating the Indiana Hoosiers for my Northwestern Wildcats last night at Welsh Ryan Arena. Kind of a scary game. Cats had a huge first half and then almost gave it away in the second half but no. Point guard number zero. Boo Booey would have none of it. Scored the last four points for the Cats. And they beat Indiana, the fourth win against a ranked team for Northwestern. That's the first time it's happened in program history. They're at 10-5 and five in the Big Ten. And again, if you don't care about college basketball, I'm sorry, but I am so fired up about this. 10-5 and five in the Big Ten. And I would say at this point, according to many of the experts, now a lock for the NCAA tournament, which we've only made once ever in school history as a member of the Big Ten Conference And I just don't even know what to do with myself. I'm starting to absolutely clear out a couple dates in mid-March when it comes to my calendar. Team came out of nowhere. One of the broadcasters in the Purdue game on Sunday, number one team in the country, Northwestern, took him down at home, made a very funny point, which was the only experts who didn't pick Northwestern to finish 13th in the conference, 13th place in the conference, were the ones who picked them to finish 14th. <laughs> and as of today, at least, they sit alone as number two in the conference with five regular season games left to go. Who knows what will happen over that final stretch. We're always looking over our shoulder for another shoe to drop as Northwestern fans. But, man, this has been fun. Sweeping the state of Indiana, Purdue, and then Indiana twice. This season has been a real delight, especially with all the whining. From their fans. Oh, yeah, the refs, the refs. Yeah, that's, Northwestern never gets calls. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a big conspiracy among the Big Ten refs to uh, help Northwestern. Sure. Okay, sure, guys. But uh, look, it's been fun as a fan. And fingers crossed, toes crossed that things continue to go well, people remain healthy, knock on wood, and we'll see what madness lies ahead. But it's been just a hell of a journey already. So before I go off on this trip, I just had to put that out there. i can actually miss a game over the weekend. Tough matchup with Iowa. We don't match up well with Iowa. So we'll see what happens against the Hawkeyes. But, look, I got the platform. I bleed purple. It's been a rough couple of football and basketball seasons. So thank you for indulging me. Although someone who apparently does not want to indulge any of this is Quiet Wyatt. Because Dan and I on the planning call today went off on a tangent – about college basketball, and Wyatt just uh, chimed in. A little negative Nancy over here. Wyatt, what was your little hot take for the team?
4: I just don't like basketball. I think it's a stupid sport. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. And why do you say that?
4: I don't know. I just think out of all the sports there are to play and be a part of, I just think that That basketball is kind of boring and it's kind of like, you know, I'm not going to say basketball players are not talented because they are. But I think it gets to a point where it's like you got a small court and you have these players that go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they just keep scoring baskets, scoring baskets. And it's kind of like who could get to the higher number first. But it's like, I don't know. It just it doesn't seem as exciting as maybe some other games or other other uh, sports out there. Wow.
2: Mm. Okay, so let me ask this and be honest is there any sort of height issue here wyatt that you're objecting to
4: <laughs> no see like to me it's like i would never want to play that sport because it's not like uh well, you get like you get th-
2: swatted on every shot i think <laughs> is, is yeah, this but what i'm hearing
4: to me it's just like even if i was taller and like a talented athlete it just wouldn't it just doesn't seem like a fun sport
2: so here's the thing nba basketball I don't watch and don't care about at all. And they play no defense, and I'm just not into it. Like, it is what it is. I like other sports in the pro realm. To me, there is a real difference in NBA basketball and college basketball. I think they play harder in college basketball. There's way more talent in the NBA, obviously, and the amazing plays and all of that. Like, the talent's off the charts. It just doesn't do it for me. I like the grittiness of college basketball, the hard play. Northwestern this year is really good defensively. Like they're holding a lot of these teams in like the 50s and 60s. They play tough every possession. I like that. I also like, and this comes to my question, the atmosphere of college hoops, especially in some of these like old buildings or you know, smaller buildings where it's just like loud and intense, and you've got the pep band going. And sometimes it gets so noisy, you can't really hear yourself think. And it's just an incredible environment. Have you ever, Wyatt, attended a big-time college basketball game where the crowd was really amped up? Have you had that experience?
4: No, and I never intend to.
2: Okay, wow. So I just think that you might have a different opinion if you lived through that experience, even once. Like, I remember... I had a friend come and visit me when I was living in Chicago. I was out of school by that point, and Northwestern was having by our standards, a decent year, not an NCAA tournament year because we almost never have that, uh, but it was they were competitive and we had a ranked team in I think it actually might have been Purdue, and she is not a sports fan at all. she doesn't care, but she was visiting me. We had a game. I took her to the game with my friends, and it was a packed arena, back and forth, fun environment, loud. We pulled the upset. And at the end, and she got really into it, yelling and screaming in ways that I was not expecting from her. At the end of the game, she's just like, I need to rest. She's like, I am exhausted. I feel like I've just gone through a marathon of something. She was like, I cannot believe how fun that was. I think you should just maybe experience it and see if you might dislike the magic of college basketball less than you would think. I, I'm just putting that out there.
4: I I don't know. The other thing that kind of like just I don't understand is like I get if you you're in college and you're you're in the group of people and you're the rah, rah, rah. But like to me, it's like I have a hard time getting invested if I don't know the people on the team. Like to me, that is another issue I have where it's like I can't be bothered to watch something if I'm not actively, you know, like friends or I know someone that's on the team. I feel like that's kind of like. You know, because I would go to the to, in high school all the the soccer and baseball and you know football games and like I knew the people, so I was invested in that way. But like I don't know, I would I would find it very hard to go and watch a game and and get crazy <laughs> over a game and oh, with, with players that I do not know at all.
2: Now I feel like with crazy for you, it would be like the occasional golf clap. People are like, whoa, he's really losing his mind over there. He looked up from the Wall Street Journal, which he has in the stands, and he golf clapped. Like, that's my view. Like, you're not jumping up and down on defensive possessions, screaming yourself hoarse. That's not really what I would envision. But that is what I would envision, of course, from our resident massive sports fan, Christine, uh, who, of course, knows sports, loves sports, uh, spends all of her time blogging and tweeting about sports. Right, Christine? So I wonder what you think about uh, some of these comments from Quiet Wyatt, frankly, these hateful comments about basketball calling it stupid.
5: I can understand where he's coming from because I too felt that way about football. But I I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm going to agree with you here, guy. I think that why it needs to get to a game. Now I've never been to a basketball game, so why why you and I can do this together. But I have to say once guy and I went to the 49ers game for Monday night football. And I got to see it live. It was so much fun that it's not that I necessarily am like a diehard football fan, but I can actually sit down now and watch with Bobby and respect why he wants to sit all day on a Sunday and watch football. Plus, there's beer and soft pretzels and hot dogs. I mean, you can't go
2: wrong. (laughs) And people watching, and especially if it's a big game and it's a good game, just the energy that gets flowing, it kind of just like flows through you. Even if you're not a huge fan of either team, it's just fun, at least for me. I know we all have fun, our different ways, whether it's being a hardcore sports fan or, you know, doing balloon animals. I mean, we've got all sorts of different ways to channel fun. Dan, I'll give you the last word since you actually are the other sports fan here.
3: I just thought this was a fascinating take because... To me, basketball is one of the most exciting because it's fast-paced. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of just, like, quickness to it. I love the NBA and college basketball. College basketball probably more. But to go to an NBA game and see how big these guys are and how quick they move and just can score. I mean, I, I hit six feet when I was, like, 11 or 12. So I started playing basketball. They, like, forced me to play basketball. So I love the game. But I just think Wyatt needs to give it a chance and, like, go there and see it and feel the energy, especially with college basketball, like you had said. It's just so electric when you're there with yep. the students. And then the NBA is kind of the same way, but it's just awesome to see also.
2: I just think Wyatt's feeling himself a little bit today. I mean, he on the, on the planning call, he's going off on Don Lemon, going off on basketball. Wyatt's got some stuff to say today. So we let him say it, but we're out of time. Got to run. Back here tomorrow for a new edition of The Guy Benson Show. I'll be gone back next week, midway through the week. We have some great guest hosts, as I said. Podcasts available every day on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. I leave you in very good hands and also Christine's. Talk to you very soon. Have a great night.